Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is June the 4th, 2015. This is episode 1588 of the Survival Podcast. And today is going to be about, dun dun dun, mint. Really? A survival podcast, and the whole show's going to be about mint? Give me a chance. Give me a chance. Let me take this plant that you just think of as, well, anybody can grow that. You plant it in the ground, it smells pretty, and that's all that it is. And maybe you can make some tea out of it and transform your vision of what that plant is. Um, it is one of the more useful families of plants. We're going to actually talk about the mint family today, or the dead nettle family today, and all the different things it can do. We're going to specifically talk about three, and I'm going to give you a fourth one just because it's fun. I'm going to teach you a little bit about botany because I am not a botanist nor a botanical expert by any means, but a little bit. Enough to kind of give you an understanding of why looking at things like genus and species and families and stuff like that is worth even doing, how that applies to pattern recognition, why once you start to understand that you learn about a plant and then when you see a kindred species you know somewhere along the lineage going up the chain in, in, the, in the nomenclature these two are probably related. They probably have similar aspects. I'm not going to go eat it if I don't know what it is or something like that, but it's worth investigating because I have an interest in this world, that type of thing. I'll teach you how this can be medicine. I will teach this how this can make your life just a little bit better. I'm going to teach you how it can make you money. I can, I'm going to teach you today how to pay yourself to make a cup of tea. How about that? Give me a chance. I promise you, you're probably going to be sticking mint cuttings by the end of summer if you listen to today's show. With that, before I do, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. When I need ammo and I want it in bulk, I go to BulkAmmo.com. Why? Because the name says what you're going to get. Ammo in bulk at great prices with lightning fast shipping. How fast is their shipping? It's almost like this. I've placed my order. I go on about my day and I hear, gee, who's that? It's the postman with my ammo. How did that happen? It's not quite that fast, but it feels that fast. I think for most of us that think, you know what I should do? I should run out to the you know sporting goods store or whatever and, and bulk up on ammo this week. By the time you got around to doing it, it could be sitting on your doorstep. That's how quick their shipping is. They have all of the common cal calibers, great pricing, excellent service, and they're a long-term sponsor. They've been with us for, I think, four years now. So when you need ammo and you need it in bulk, Get on over to Bulk Ammo. Remember, ammo is one of the three components to the, the, the triangle of gun operator effectiveness. You've got to have the weapon. You go to a gunfight without a gun, you got a problem. You, the operator, needs training. But even with a good operator and a good firearm, without the ammo, man, that's the terminal tackle, as we say in fishing. You've got to have the ammo to put food on the table, to protect life and property, and to train effectively. Check out BulkAmmo.com today. And remember, they do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. Just check the Benefits section of your MSB for more information on that. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Sawtooth Tactical. You'll find them over at sawtac.com. You'll get all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle if you get on over to Sawtac. Veteran owned, veteran operated, and nestled in the wilderness of the Sawtooth Mountains. 
That's why they call them Sawtack. And when I say everything, I mean everything from the awesome manly titanium spork, Maxpedition bags, Magpul magazines, SOE tactical gear, and everything else you can think of. If it's tactical, they have it at Sawtooth Tactical. Remember the website again, www.sawtack.com. And they also do do a discount for members of the support brigade. So if you're a member and you're going to get some tactical material from Sawtack, get into your MSB account, click on benefits, and look up Sawtack and get that discount. Again, a veteran-owned, veteran-operated company nestled in the sawtooth wilderness of Idaho, sawtack.com. With that, I want to give you a, another quick reminder that next week there will be no survival podcast. That's right, I am going to Wild and Wooly, West Virginia for the Permaethos Summer Event. If you're in the area, I know at this point long-term travel plans are all but impossible, but if you're in the area, there's probably a few uh, seats left at it. I'm not sure, but I'll have a link to the uh, the event information in today's show notes, and there's probably one or two available where you can come up and hang out with us, eat some awesome food, meet some awesome people, learn a lot of really great stuff. But I will be gone all week next week. There's no way that I'm going to be able to really get anything done from there. Um, I have business to conduct with the other members of the company prior to uh, the event. Then I've got the event. I've got lots of people. I'm coming back Sunday. I'm going to be worn out. So I, um, it, it is even possible, though not probable, that I might take the Monday off of the following week just to recover. We shall see. Uh, but anyway, I'm going to have some big announcements when I come back. And some people have been asking, can I give you an update on Permaethos? Uh, my thought was the fact that all of the, the owners are going to be getting together for this event, that it would be better that we have our summer meeting together, and then I'll come back and give you kind of a state of the union or state of the ethos uh, update on permaethos. Anyway, with that, I also wanted to go ahead and uh, remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. Uh, remember, if you are an expired member, you should have gotten an email, and that email will probably tell you something like, hey, there's a special deal, get in touch with Jack. If you've answered that email and said, I want the deal, and you haven't got a response, it's your email provider, it's not me. Anybody that's not a member yet, you can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com, clicking on Members. And you can sign up there. You can support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. I would like to say something right now, though, about PayPal in general. Uh, about once a week I hear from somebody, I refuse to use PayPal. They suck. They're anti-gun. Um, okay, let's leave that on the shelf for a second. You say, look, I understand not everybody wants to use the same payment method. There is a, on the members section of the site at the bottom, there's a way you can pay by silver and check and money order. All that stuff's at the bottom. You click it, there's a form. So you don't have to use PayPal. But I'd like to speak to that now for a second, because I think this is a very important thing, and I think that we need to understand the value of PayPal to people like yourselves that might want to start businesses. PayPal, as a company, is not, not, not anti-gun. Are there anybody in the ownership uh, ranks of PayPal that are probably anti-gun jackasses? I'm sure there are, and I'm sure if we went through your home and started analyzing all the products you have in your home and who makes them, you would find the same thing, that there are people in the companies at leadership positions that hate guns. If you are a, a, a rich liberal in California, where many companies are headquartered in this country, you probably hate guns. Okay, Those are two different things. With PayPal, you cannot buy tobacco, you can buy, buy alcohol, you cannot buy Indian artifacts, you cannot buy World War II Nazi Germany memorabilia. There's a list about a mile long of things that create specific liabilities for a merchant account provider, especially with interstate and international shipping attached to it with a billion different rules. 
So for companies like this, the easiest thing for them to do is make a list of all that stuff and say, we don't do that. Okay, so that's that's the first thing. This is a liability protection thing. Um, my other side of this, though, let's say that they specifically had only said no to guns because of the same type of thing. Though. Not because we hate guns and they were making anti-gun, like this is our anti-gun statement, which they've never done, okay? Um, that, that it was just, even if it was just guns. Unless they had made a specific attempt to support the banning of firearms or to increase regulation on firearms or something like that as a company, using their company power for that, I would still give them a pass, and this is why. For many entrepreneurs starting up a business that want to do direct business with their customers, you don't want to be an Amazon affiliate or something like that, you want to exchange money. Getting started is difficult and was damn near impossible without a huge investment to, in insurances and things like that to get a, a merchant account to sell things online. And you are not going to get a merchant account from Citicorp or any of these other people to sell guns online anyway. You, you'll find out really quick. And be, well, they don't let you do firearms accessories. I don't know. Lenwood Leather makes holsters. They're an MSB vendor, and they take PayPal for their holsters. So I think there's a lot of confusion there. And I would say this, the single biggest contribution to small entrepreneurs making a living online today on the internet by any individual single company as far as a tool the entrepreneur uses has been made by PayPal. There are literally millions of people making from full-time incomes to part-time incomes that make the car payment because of PayPal. It was founded, founded by Elon Musk. Now of Tesla fame, um, the guy's a raving libertarian, and this policy goes back to when he still was an owner in the company. This is this is not an anti-gun thing. And again, I, I think that you need to take the context when you have like a hatred for something, pull the emotions out, and think about it a little bit. Again, because how much good has the fact that PayPal exists done for people? I bet you if I said everybody in this audience who is in business and takes money with PayPal and was able to get your business off the ground because it was so easy, just post that it's you in the comments of today's show notes. And if everybody hearing me took the time to go do it, it might be the longest comment thread you ever saw. Again, there are millions of people today paying their bills because of PayPal. So... Try not to be so reactionary with certain things when your emotions are keyed up. Just saying. Let's take a look at the year that was the episode before we get into this mint stuff. Okay. We today have two from Alex Shrug. We have Sudden Death Overtime, England versus the Spanish Armada. And we have The First Potatoes Reach Vienna. I'm going to read The First Potatoes Reach Vienna. A novelty from the New World comes to Vienna. A few varieties of potatoes are brought to the Old World from the Andes after conquering the Incas. By a few varieties, I mean these are not a full cross-section of what's available in Peru. Over the years, the government will realize that this plant could save them from famine. In fact, the potato will be responsible for one quarter of the growth in European population in the next hundred years, and the sweet potato will save the Chinese people. The potato and the sweet potato, which is not a real potato, will build nations and virtually destroy them when the potato blight comes, though. But that is in the future. For now, it will just be a novel plant with pretty flowers. My take by Alex Shrug. The serious drop in temperature from 1580 to 1600 was due to the Little Ice Age. This increased storm activity and cold wiped out cross across Europe. 
Millions died of starvation in Russia during those decades, coupled with inflation due to the silver glut. The poor could no longer afford food. To have cold-weather crop like potato come along at this time must have seemed like a godsend. Unfortunately, part of the reason the potato fell prey to the potato blight was the attempt to apply monocrop methods to potato production and lack of variety in the potato species cultivated in Europe. My take by Jack Spiro, it's so much worse than a little blurb in the wiki. I mean, in Ireland, where the, the, the potato famine is best known, there was a potato variety called the Lumper, and the, the, uh, the Irish government actually dictated that all farmers would grow this one potato. So a field of nothing potatoes, potatoes, all with one potato, and then a blight that that potato was susceptible hits, and ba-boom. Um, I actually consider potatoes in my region to be a very fragile crop. Uh, I threw a bag of seed potatoes in one of my garden beds just to see what happened this year, and um, we'll see what they do. But I can already see blight on some of them. To be fair, we had an awful lot of rain. And in some regions, potatoes are like one of the easiest and most resilient things to grow. Um, so here's my take on this. I think when you're looking at producing food from your, for yourself, that what, what is very tempting is to look at what can I grow that's a staple that everybody else grows because we know that's easy to grow. There's a mistake there, and that is not everything grows well everywhere. I think the best thing we can do to provide food, food security for ourselves is to figure out what grows well in our region and then also what grows well on our property. Um, just 20 miles from here in, in a town called Granbury, uh, they have soils that are like a sandy loam that are like 25 feet deep before you find a rock. And there's a lot of things that would grow really well there that don't grow well in my clay soil sitting a couple inches above a rock slab. And even if I go and amend soils and even if I go and build raised beds and things like that, you still have, especially as you try to go to scale and produce a significant amount of food, challenges unique to your property. I like to plant a little bit of everything, and as I've been watching for the last three years, the things that are doing well here, we'll plant more of the stuff that does well here, more of the stuff that likes to live here. It sounds overly simple, but if you really want security, plant the things that like to grow where you live and never become dependent on a thing. Right? So, you know, have not just multiple varieties, but multiple crops to produce large amounts of food if you're going to be dependent upon them. And then we can build, you know, things from the community to the village to the to the region to the state scale the same way. What can we grow in our different regions of our states, et cetera, that is diverse and provide food security? Because if you don't provide your own food security, you're counting on someone else to do it for you. Now, what we're going to talk about today with Mint is not really a lot of food security. Um, I have, you know, Mint's going salads just fine. They really do. But I've never seen anybody say, hey, you want a big bowl of Mint? Um, and I don't think you'd really enjoy eating a big bowl of mint. Mint is, is one of the, the, the salts of the plant world. And what I mean by that is it's something that we take in small amounts and we put with other things when we're using it as a food. Uh, we can actually use large amounts of mint for many things, but you know, again, a bowl of it is not what you would do. A salad sprinkled with, you know, an ounce of fresh chopped mint is pretty awesome. Uh, it changes the entire character of it. But, again, if we made a salad that was 20% mint, you'd be like, what the heck is this? I'm not eating this. It's too much. Right? So it's not a food security issue. But what it is is one of the easiest ways that I know of to get into producing something that you use in your diet and in your life that you actually have complete control over with an incredible diversity 
and, and, and an incredible ease, and an incredible ease of, of propagation. It's one of the easiest things in the world that you could ever want to propagate. You don't need any special tools to propagate mint. When I do it, I do use rooting hormone, but you don't need it. You really don't. Um, it's something that we can grow in a pot, a person that has a small balcony. So I hear from people all the time, you're always talking about this broad scale stuff. I'm like, dude, I got three acres. I'm using two of it with all the stuff I'm doing right now. Uh, other than grazing the ducks, uh, they get to go on the full three and, and paddock shift. But I'm really working with two acres right now. Um, but that's a lot more than most people have. And, you know, I, I, I started this show. When I started this show, I had a third of an acre in, in suburbia. And I was using a small piece of that. And, But even a lot of people say, well, I don't have room for a 4 by 8 bed. I don't have room. I live in an apartment, for God's sakes. Mint will do well, even with a significant amount of shade. As long as it gets some sunlight, it will do well. So there's almost no one, if you have a patio or a porch and you live in an apartment, you can grow mint. You get four or five plant, uh, pots and grow four or five varieties, and you can do. you will not believe how much you can do with this stuff by the end of today's show. You will not believe how much diversity there is, and I'm going to scratch the surface of the diversity that's there. It is because it's so easy to grow, and because some people actually fear it, right? I mean, uh, people think it's going to take over. I mean, don't get me wrong. Don't, don't plant this in your vegetable garden, because it will take over a vegetable garden. But it's not going to take over and rule all. Right. If it would, then there's plenty of mint growing in plenty of places right now, and the whole world would be covered in it. I mean, there's invasive species stuff. You know, yeah, it's going to just take over. Ah. You know, I mean, kudzu is a problem in the southeast. But have you ever seen mint climbing up a billboard and overtake? I mean, it's not kudzu. It's mint. It, it doesn't do well in dry soils at all. As soon as things really, really dry up, it starts suffering, and it doesn't take long for it to, if it gets really dry for it to start dying. Uh, so the one thing it needs is moisture and, and, and at least enough soil to get that bed of roots matted out and, and to spread. So if you have an area that's really dry and you have an area that you irrigate and you irrigate that area and there's a buffer around that you don't irrigate, you're not going to have a lot of mint running through the dryness. You're just not. And even if you have a rainy period like I did this spring, yeah, it's going to dry up sooner or later and it's going to start putting back. And, you know, we're going to put in a pretty big mint garden. Dorothy and I are. And I'm sure people look at it and go, oh my God, it's going to do all these wonderful, uh, horrible things, you know. And well, uh, the whole thing outside of the garden border is grass that we mow with a tractor. My neighbor had spearmint in Arlington in his backyard. And all we got out of that was it crawled into our lawn underneath the fence. And every time we mowed, it smelled good. So it, it's just not an issue, right? Unless you're trying to have a true green chem lawn, that's not an issue either. So I think because of all these things, because it's almost like feared that it's too powerful or something like that, that, that people like overlook the value of it. Like, that's just mint. You throw some in a pot and you make tea out of it or whatever. There's so many things it can do. Um, I want to start out by giving you an understanding of what is, what is the mint family. And understand when I say anything in Latin, I'm doing my best. It's probably based more on my study of the Spanish language than the Latin language, even though there's common roots there. The truth is no one, absolutely no one, absolutely no one, absolutely no one is sure how any Latin word is truly pronounced because all the people that spoke Latin as a native language are dead. 
uh, and have been for a long time. No one speaks Latin. It is literally the dead language. So no one being too critical of, uh, of my redneck Latin pronunciation, but the Mint family is the Labiante family, okay? Um, and so a lot of people, you tell them like Bee Balm and Peppermint are in the same family. Well, there's a taxonomy there. And, and Labiante is actually fairly high in the taxonomy. That's, again, the family level. And when I say high, I mean in the way we think is is lay people on an everyday basis. If I say something in a mint family, it's all supposed to be like mint smelling and not necessarily. You come down then from the family to the genus and the genus to the species. So you have a genre. And in this genre uh, level, uh, right below the family level, there's four mint species or dead nettles uh, family members that that we commonly grow in, in our systems. And they are bee bombs, lemon bombs, peppermints and spearmints, and catmints. Those are the, the, the four that, they're not the only ones. I mean, just to give you an idea, in that family of, of mints, we're talking at least 400 different varieties without getting into like species and subspecies. It's, 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 it's a massive world. Uh, the mint world. It, and a lot of this stuff hybridizes very easily. So it's almost as if if you really got into this as a botanist and started studying it, um, you would find you could almost have new varieties showing up all the time. In fact, they are. Just nobody's really cataloging them unless they're something unique and important and marketable. Uh, and a lot of this stuff's not highly marketable because no one's really ever tried and most of what we have already does everything it's ever going to really do other than maybe smell a little different, look a little different or something like that. So because of that, people don't generally become a mint specialist, all right? If I'm wrong, if there's somebody out there that's a mintologist or whatever you would call it, a labiantologist or something, that's fine. But for for us folks, now... As we look at, when I say bee balm, lemon balm, peppermint, and spearmint, which is one family or one genus, and cat mints, there is the individual genus. And I don't want to turn this into a biology class because, number one, I'm not qualified to teach a biology class, and two, I don't think we need to get that deep. But it does help to understand these different genres so that we understand how to group these plants when we're thinking of what they do for us and what contributions they might make to our systems. Bee bombs are Monarda. For some reason, I often say Morinda when I'm talking about bee bombs. I don't know why, other than, again, I'm not a biologist, but Morinda is from the coffee family. Okay, Monarda is the bee bombs. Bee bombs are... If you take a bee balm and somebody tells you it's a mint and you've never smelled it before and you crumble up some leaves and smell them, you'll think to yourself, well, that smells kind of cool and interesting, uh, but that doesn't smell like mint. And you look at the leaves and go, that doesn't look really like what I think of when I think of mint. There's a similarity, but it's not really the same thing. Bee balms are really great as additives in teas, and they're also used for... A lot of other medicinal uses and things we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, there's different varieties, and the the red-flowered wild variety that's native to the United States uh, is also known as Oswego tea, Oswego, O-S-E-W-E, something like that, Oswego tea. And it was drank commonly by the colonists in, in, in the early colonial days during the whole rebellion against England when tea was in short supply. 
And it has a, a similar but different characteristic. It's not like a mint tea at all. It's more almost a buttery, um, velvety texture to the tea. And that, to me, is its best use for culinary use. It doesn't have the hit-you-in-the-face flavor of a spearmint or a peppermint or anything like that. Um, lemon balms are in the genre Melissa. So when you hear Melissa, Melissa officinalis, that's like the common lemon balm that everybody plants if, pe if you plant lemon balm. It has that lemony flavor. And that's like and it has a lemony smell. And that, to me, is its biggest contribution, that it has that, that going for it. It also, and you know, we hear about citronella plants, and there's, is a, there, there's certain varieties that have more and less of that, but lemon balms do have some citronella in them. Now that, of course, is if you have candles made out of this stuff that you light that are supposed to keep mosquitoes away and things like that. So lemon balm actually makes a pretty decent rub-on-your-body insect repellent. Is it as effective as a high-deet formula? No, but it's probably better for your body and skin, and you don't stink. You smell like lemon. Um, it's not so overpowering as the full-on citronella plant or the mosquito plant they call it in a market and sell to you. Um, so if you rub that on you, you're kind of overpowering. But it works pretty well for me. There's a lot of times if I'm walking around, especially in early spring when there's more mosquitoes out and things like that, if they're bugging me, I, I'll rub that on my hands and my face and my neck, and it, it helps repel them. So it has that kind of a use. It also does have some medicinal uses. It has a lot of culinary uses. It's a very interesting flavor. It's lemony. It's not lemon, right? It doesn't taste just like lemon. It has a lemon-like flavor. It's one of those things where people say, well, what, is, what do frogs' leg, legs taste like? You know, they kind of taste like chicken. But they, it's not like you know, rabbit tastes like chicken. It really kind of does, right? Frog legs don't really taste like chicken. But if you've never had a frog leg... That's as close as I can explain it. That's how I feel about how lemony is lemon balm. It smells sort of like lemon. It tastes sort of like lemon. It doesn't have the sourness of lemon, though. It's kind of like you use lemon zest for flavor, but it's not really. And it's got this interesting flavor as well. Peppermints and spearmints are both in the family mentha, as in menthol. These are the ones that you think of as the classic mints. When you smell it, you go, that's mint. Uh, when I'm walking through uh, my food forest with people and the dogs go with us, sometimes all it'll take is a dog runs ahead and walks through a patch of mint and somebody goes, oh, wow, mint. Especially in the mornings when there's dew on it, when that dog just st steps on a piece of it. All of a sudden you smell it 10 feet away. Wow, oh, there's mint. That's what you're thinking of. Spearmints generally have more of a, a softer. Uh, Mentha spicata is your, your spearmints. And your peppermint's a little bit more intense flavored. And, and they can be used for a lot of the same things. And then we have one I'm not going to talk about much today, but I thought I would bring it in. Um, cat mints, Nepita. Uh, cat mints are your, you know, your catnips and things like that. And there are some uses for catnips. People do use catnips for more than just making a cat act high for 15 seconds. Generally with cat mints, it's the, instead of harvesting the leaves and the stems and the whole flower the way we do with a lot of other mints, it's the, you, you wait for the, the, the flowers to come to, uh, you know, full bloom. And then you harvest the flowers and dry them. And they're a, a, a they're a calming, tonic type thing. They have some refrigerant properties, as you might think of with the coolingness of mint. Uh, and they are mildly stimulating. Uh, so they're, they're something that can stimulate a person and yet also calm them down at the same time. 
So it's and there's a lot of herbs like that, and peppermint does this too. And it, it's one of the kind of miracles of of mint and, and quite a few other herbs, frankly, that that act in both ways. The, your mind, your body knows when it's really time to go to sleep, and it knows when it's really time to be awake. And mint is one of these things that when it's time to be awake, the smell of mint, the flavor of mint, some of the constituents of different mints can actually help you be awake more. And yet, it can take the same substance at night when you're just a little bit insomniatic or something like that, and it can help you calm down and go to sleep. Think about how that is different than something like, let's say, a drug. You're not going to use the same drug to, to go to sleep as you are to wake up if you're using a, an over-the-counter drug or if you're using a pharmaceutical drug that requires a prescription or if you're using a street drug, right? All of them, the, there's, you know, you either have like a, an amphetamine, a stimulant, or you have a depressant. You don't really get the same effect from the same substance. Now, I know some people would say, well, a person that's like hyperactive, sometimes a stimulant calms them down. Yeah, but then that's what it does, right? It doesn't do one or the other based on the need and the timing and the state that the mind and the body's in. The only thing I know that does that are herbs, and mint's one of the best ones for that. Cat mints can help with that. They're an interesting thing to grow to use for that purpose and add some additional medicinal qualities to teas and things like that. The other thing cat mints have been really good for that I've found is if you have problems with squash bugs and you grow a great big patch of cat mint and instead of just getting your cat high with it, as the squash bugs start to show up, you cut big bundles of it and, and put it in and around your um, your squash plants. They don't seem to really be interested in it anymore. They don't seem to like it. So it can be a repellent and, and many mints are good insect repellents as well. So let's kind of move in then to some uses for mints. Tea is the classic and I, I think that it's something that's overlooked because, you know, how many guys that are out with their AR-10 shooting 800-meter targets, taking a, a long-range sniper class, uh, want to talk about making mint tea with, their, with their, their, their fellow compatriot that's out there ringing the gong at 800 meters? Well, maybe you should. Maybe you should. Why? Um, I'm going to show that I, even though I, I bang on video games a lot because people become gamers and spend like 12 hours a day playing games, that it's not like I don't know anything about video games. I don't even know if it's Halo or, but there's one combat game where, uh, when you have like a sniper rifle and you're shooting people, there's a certain tonic or potion that you can find in the game. Again, I don't know that much, but I know that it exists somewhere. And you take that, and when you're trying to hold the crosshairs on the target that far away, and they're moving from your breathing or whatever, it calms them down, and it makes it easier to hit your distant targets. That might be the case. That might be the case. So think about what I said. It's a stimulant, but it's also a calmative. Right? So it also has the ability to relax a person and yet stimulate them. And what it actually is doing is letting the mind focus and then letting the body take over. So by having sharper focus and be more relaxed, you're going to be a better shot. So I think it even would, I, I know that sounds like a stretch, but I think mint tea actually could, it, it, as well as any other thing, even if it's a psychosomatic effect, I'm not guaranteeing you you'll tighten your groups up, but I'll tell you what, you're not going to hurt them. Um, another use for mint is a basic mouthwash. You know, we talk all the time around here about what do you do if the shit hits the fan? Well, what do you do if your breath stinks? Right? I mean, so mint is a great mouthwash, and it's a great mouth cleanser. 
Uh, it has a lot of antibiotic and antiviral properties in it, so a, a strong wash of mint wash, so something that would be way stronger than you might use for a tea. Uh, brewed at a higher level and then put aside as a mint wash is very good for that. It's also good as an oral hygiene product. Uh, it can be combined with other things. A little bit of a mint wash mixed with something like a fine salt uh, actually makes a reasonable toothpaste. And there's some other things you can do with that as well. Um, it's just a good product for things like that. It's also good for rinsing your hair. It's not really a great shampoo, um, but it is a good rinse. And it's probably a lot better for your hair than that cream rinse, goopy stuff that comes in a bottle next to the shampoo. And every shampoo has a matching cream rinse. Yeah, have you ever read the label of a bottle of that stuff? And it has an interesting side effect for people that use it as, as a hair rinse. Um, and again, this would be a mint wash. And this is pretty much mint tea. Uh, you don't have to really make this much stronger than you would for anything else. So it's a, just a, a, you know, a mint tea that you would uh, wash your hair with. It has a suppressive effect on dandruff. Now, I don't have that issue. I don't have a lot of dandruff. But if you do, you know it's kind of annoying. It's kind of a problem or what have you. And the dandruff shampoo industry is a billion-dollar industry. And from what I've read and from people I've talked to that have tried it, it seems to work every bit as good as the blue stinky stuff shampoo that you put on your hair. So you might want to give it a try for that. So it's a tea. It's a mouthwash. It's a hair rinse. It's a dandruff fighter. Um, and using it culinarily, there's some things you can do with it that you might not have ever thought of. Mint cheese. Sounds crazy. It's awesome. It's awesome. And one, like, some people put it in cottage cheese and stuff. Like, I don't ever really have never enjoyed cottage cheese. What I like to do for a soft cheese you can make yourself is I like to make, um, uh, what, what you call yogurt cheese, or at least I call it yogurt cheese. And you get a byproduct of whey that's just kind of a superfood you can drink. Or you can use it to jumpstart things like your fermented vegetables. And um, the typical way you do it is you just take some cheesecloth and you just dump some yogurt into the cheesecloth. You tie a string around the cheesecloth and hang it from something and it'll start dripping away. So you put a bowl underneath it and let it drip. The longer you let it drip, the drier it becomes, the little more firm it becomes, and the more tart and tangy it becomes. Generally for me, hanging for, you know, if you make it in the middle of the day, hanging about 20 to 24 hours, I'm done. And then I want to refrigerate it after that. And you've got a good soft yogurt cheese. I mean, this is dead simple. And cheesecloth, a lot of people use. I found something at Walmart called flour sack towels. Uh, they're far more reusable than cheesecloth. And they um, are dirt cheap, and they always have them there, and they don't always have cheesecloth available. So I've gone to using those because they have other uses where cheesecloth is pretty much good for straining stuff. Uh, and they're a little bit finer mesh, and they still work well, so it takes a little longer for stuff to strain through them, but you get less getting through. Like if you were straining finely, minted, finely chopped mint leaves out of water, you might use these instead. Um, and again, they wash, they clean up, you know, what have you. So uh, that's just a little side tip there. But you take this yogurt cheese and you mix fresh, not, 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 not dried mint leaves with this, fresh mint leaves with this, and then use that cheese on different vegetables like cucumbers and things like that. It's freaking awesome. It really is. And it's such a beneficial food for your body, especially if you can get raw milk-based yogurt. Now, you might have to make your own yogurt to get that anymore, but... Yeah, and what I'd love to try it with is real Greek yogurt. Um, as far as I know, 
There's no such thing in the United States as real Greek yogurt. First of all, it's all low fat or no fat, which a, a, a real Greek could probably punch you in the face for doing that. And second of all, in Greece, yogurt's made from sheep's milk. Full fat sheep's milk. I would love to make yogurt cheese using a full fat sheep's milk. Never been able to do it. I've done it with the goat's milk yogurt, and it's, it's pretty fantastic. Um, but those are some other things that you can consider doing with mint. Um, next, salads. I mentioned this earlier, but you just take your boring everyday salad, get you know a handful of mint leaves, take them off the stems for this, chop them finely. So slice and chop them finely. You don't really want to chop mint. It's more of a slicing motion, so you don't uh, kind of bruise it. It kind of just gets all lumpy and kind of bruised. It's better if you slice it so it stays nice and fluffy, and you, you spread that through a salad, uh, either vegetable salad or fruit salads. It's awesome. I know this is sound a little bit like hints from Heloise here for a second. It'll, I just want to cover all the stuff that this stuff does. How about ground cover? I give people all the time, well, I'm put it down for a ground cover in my you know, forest systems. Remember when I planted it at one of the workshops, the students were like, that's going to take over the whole ground area. So that's the plan. That's the plan. It's going to outcompete everything. It's not going to outcompete a tree. It grows 18 to 24 inches tall. It's not going to outcompete a tree that grows six feet tall, is it? And it's not going to grow everywhere. It's going to grow everywhere that it's going to grow well. It's going to leave some bare patches. I'm going to have to figure out what to put there. Um, again, I'm not saying to just be careless with where you put mint, but if you have broad acre systems and you're not trying to grow a lot of ground covers for productivity and you need something to do the job in moist areas, especially moist areas with partial shade, it'll do a great job. And then it leads to the next you know, thing that it'll do for you. It becomes a beneficial insect attractor. Um, you really, and I'll get more into this when I get into har some basics on this and harvesting and other things, but you really want to harvest mint before it flowers because when it flowers, it loses a lot of its, its pop, right? Its flavor, its taste, uh, that minty characteristic to it. But if you have lots of it, more than you can use, you can let a lot of it go to flower and you'll just see it swarming with beneficial insects. I mean, literally swarming. The next then, though, is so sooner or later I'm going to have a huge amount of mint. What am I going to do with it? Well, I'm going to get my scythe out like I did with a big patch of sweet mint two days ago, and I'm going to scythe it. And then what do I have? I have a biomass. I have a bio, So I have something I can use as a chop and drop. Because if it grows, think about it, something grows, you know, 18 to 24 inches tall, dense. You go through it with a scythe. And cut it down. You've got... You've got biological accumulation going on. You've got this plant that's taking up all these nutrients, and when it when it rots back into the soil, if it's more than you can use for other things, it's putting all of that back to the earth. And I, I've determined I'm not a real big fan of the sweet mint, as they call it, so I'm doing that mostly with it. And here's the little side note. So I've got a place where it's not that I mind that I have mint there. It's that I have a mint variety that I'm not too pleased with. So what I'll do now is I'll start putting mint of a different variety right into that area. And so I'll side it again when it comes back, and then I'll plant a different variety in there that's got a head start. And then I'll selectively prune, because about the only thing that's going to outcompete mint is another mint. So we'll kind of slowly success that over to something I like a little bit better. And that gives another little aside here. I suggest trying mints before you plant them and deciding, do I really want this one? Because they are a little bit hard to even take over with another mint from. When you plant this stuff, 
If you're putting it somewhere in the ground, be sure you want it there. It's not that you cannot eradicate it, but it's not easy. It's really not easy. Um, so we got the biomass thing. It also is really great as a medicinal for upset stomachs. It, it, mint uh, essential oil works really well for this, but a mint tea is dynamite when your stomach's just, ugh, you just don't feel good. It, it's amazing how well it works. And I found that almost anything with peppermint or spearmint does this. And I mean, you know, mints that you like candies, mint candies are, are good for this. Uh, mint teas, chewing some mint leaves seems to help with this. Any type of, uh, of nausea, it, it seems to work well for, unless it's like some extreme requires medical, tr medical treatment, now nausea. Mild nausea we deal with all the time. So now you have another medicinal use. And I want to think about this from a survival standpoint. How much of this stuff's already done? I'm not done yet. So another medicinal use is clearing sinuses. Now, This is best done with essential oil, and I'll talk a little bit about how you make essential oil in a bit, but it's, it's an involved process, and to do it right, it's, it's kind of expensive for the equipment, and it might be one of those things that you're better off purchasing. Uh, but if you have stuffed up nose, and you take a little thing, of, and you have to use any of it is what's great about it, a little uh, thing of uh, mint oil, essential oil, and you open it, and you just inhale through your nose, it opens your nasal passages really, really quick. That's better than spraying, you know, Afrin or something up there that's going to jack up your entire system over time. It's quick, it's effective, it works, it has no adverse side effects that I've ever heard of anyway. So it, it can help clear sinuses. It can also help with, you know, when you're sick and congested and breathing, you, if, you, if you boil a bunch of mint to make tea and you inhale the, the, uh, the, the steam, It, it's 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 quite good at opening up the congestion and helping you with that. It's a minor expectorant as well. Um, it also is good for either soaking your feet or your whole body in a bath. Now, I know now again we're starting to sound a little soft here, like we're going to take a, a bath with rose petals or something like that. Look, if you work your ass off, your body gets sore. Sooner or later when your body gets sore enough, you start thinking about things like, I'm going to start popping Advil's or you know ibuprofen, uh, which is the same as Advil, or Tylenol, uh, or Aleve, and some of these other things. If you start looking at the side effects of all this stuff and using it regularly, um, it is not a, just going to put it this way. It's not a really great thing for your stomach, your liver, your kidneys, depending on which one you're using and how often. And as to which one it really has the most effect on. But they're not really great for that. They also have a tendency, since they mask pain rather than alleviate the actual uh, tension that's causing the pain, to cause you then to go, oh, I feel good, now I'm going to work harder and, and exasperate the injury. Where things like mint and the, the, the menthol uh, penetration that goes into the muscle, yes, it's anti-inflammatory, but also calms the entire system. And that way, you're more likely to ease the pain, but if there's still swelling, you still know it, and you know to take it easy. I know everybody wants to be a big he-man, a big tough guy, but the problem with aggravating injuries and continuously aggravating injuries is they become chronic. And if you're actually worried about shit hit the fan, and you're actually worried about long-term grid down, what you cannot be is taking care of yourself and incapacitated at the same time. A lot of the, 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 the Rambo visions that people have, I wonder how they're going to accomplish them if they do so much as sprain an ankle with no knowledge about any of these things that we're talking about today. You know, I'll fight through the pain. For how long? 
And how much worse will the injury become? So soaking feet, soaking the body, soaking you know the legs, relaxation, really, really good for that. Using mint actually suppresses appetite. I found that I'm less likely to get munchy if I drink mint tea. And there was a study done, I don't know if I can find it or not, but the they had participants in the study versus a control simply several times a day, and I don't remember how many, open up a little thing of mint essential oil and smell it. That's all they did. They said, do whatever else you want. And then they analyzed what the people ate. There was a 20-plus percent, I don't remember exactly what the number was, but it was more than 20% reduction in caloric intake in people that smelled mint frequently throughout the day. Now, this is the interesting thing about the study, if I remember it right. It wasn't a license to eat whatever you want, and I don't think the participants in the study even knew why they were doing it. Like, we're just going to see how you perform uh, smelling mint oil. So I think that that could be a counterproductive thing if you just think, I'm going to lose weight by smelling mint, and next thing you know, you're shoving down ding-dongs and ho-hos. Um, you have to kind of release that knowledge and how that's what it does based on the way I read this study um, so that you're not thinking it's a license to eat a lot of food. But if you were to use mint in your life, you may find yourself just naturally eating a little bit less. And that can be very beneficial if you struggle with weight gain. What kills more people every year in the United States, guys? Cardiovascular disease uh, or gunshots? How hard is that one to figure out? Okay, um, Survival podcast indeed. Another thing that is bad for us is a lot of the cleaning products that we use uh, in our homes. Uh, if you just pick up a bottle of blue you know, formula, whatever you want to call it, a green formula or whatever you spray on countertops and windows and stuff like that, and read the ingredients, you'll go, yeah, maybe I don't need to be breathing this. Maybe I don't need to have this um, be part of my life for any significant period of time or anything like that. Um, so one of the great cleaners that's completely natural and completely safe out there is vinegar. But what I find with people with vinegar, my wife is, is it's just incredibly sensitive to this. It stinks. I don't like the smell. I don't think it lasts very long. I think people can overreact to it. My wife, absolutely, God, I love that woman more than any other human being on this planet, but she is the most overreactive pain in the ass when it comes to vinegar, of any person I know. I'll be rubbing a little bit of apple cider vinegar on a pork roast and I'm about to smoke. She'll go, oh my God, it smells so bad. Like Five minutes later, she stopped complaining about it because the smell's gone. She doesn't know that, but she's still complaining that it did smell. Right? Um, if you're going to use vinegar as a cleaner, what you could do is make a heavily mint-infused vinegar, and it helps to mitigate that smell and that yam, yam, yam about the smell of the vinegar. Uh, that vinegar also can then be used for cooking as well. Mint-infused vinegar is pretty awesome stuff. You can do the same thing with olive oil and make mint-infused oils uh, for cooking. I don't think you'd wipe down your uh, your countertops with olive oil, but it works good for that as well. Now, you might imagine that since it has insect-repelling capabilities, it's good for dandruff, and you can wash your hair with it, that it might actually be good to wash your dog with a concentrated mint tea. You would be correct. It will help repel fleas and ticks. It will make the dog smell good. It will remove some of the dog stink, Charlie Daniels, as he looks at me. Um, and it will rinse 
easily, unlike a lot of shampoos. If you wet your dog down, first wet him with a hose, because usually especially longer-haired dogs like my Shepherd Max are hard to get wet in the first place, and then have a big bucket of mint wash and, and work that into the dog's fur and then rinse him off and give him a good brushing right away and then let him dry and give him a good brushing again, you'll swear to God you use shampoo on that dog and you'll never leave soap in your dog's fur, which is very irritating. You won't be using dog shampoo, which costs three times as much and is probably just as bad in many ways for a dog. Um, it's just an easier way to go. And there's oils in the mint that will help condition the dog's fur and his skin and everything just the way it would help you. And of course, it is an insect repellent. And of course, the, the Minarda is a higher level insect repellent than the mint. So if in our big five-gallon bucket of mint wash that we make for the dog, we include a couple handfuls of lemon balm, we're going to even do more to intensify that effect. So now you might want to grow a little bit more of it than a couple flower pots. You might understand why people might grow it on a little bit broader scale. I mean, how much does this stuff cost, right? If you want to buy 100 pounds of dried mint, you know what it costs? I found a place called Bulk Apothecary, the best price I could find on Quality mint, $238 for 100 pounds. Now, you can do a lot with 238 pounds of dried mint, but where'd that mint come from? What I've talked about mostly here is using it fresh. Because we can take a couple harvests a year, and we can take an end-of-year harvest, and we can put up a lot of mint. But, um, you know, where'd that come from? Who grew it? Under what conditions? So think about that as we go into some basics here and some thoughts that I have on why you might want to do this. Uh, let's talk about when and how to harvest mint. Most people don't really think about this. Because what people tend to do is just say, if I feel like some mint tea, I'll go out and pick some mint, put it in a cup, dump some hot water on it, and make some mint tea. While that's true, the issue becomes, if you don't feel like it, you don't do it. And when you're using fresh mint, you use a significant amount. And I will give you some rules of thumb in a little bit on making teas where if we actually harvest, we dry, and we package it in some way that's easily measurable and it's labeled and it's in the cupboard, we're more likely to use it. And if we are preppers, and hopefully everybody listens to this show is, when you have a crisis situation, you may not have time to go out and get this stuff or any other stuff that you're making part of your diet in your life. So it makes sense to think about both ongoing and larger-scale harvest, partial to full harvest of this stuff. So I, it does nothing against ongoing. I do it all the time, especially in the summer when it's growing like crazy. I really do. Um, and I don't like to do what I'll call a full or even a partial harvest to everything at once. I like to take a harvest from an area, and until that area gets to a recovery period where I'm willing to start taking fresh harvest from again, I don't want to fully harvest the other place until I get to end of season. Okay? But you can harvest properly managed, well-established, this would be probably in your second, third year, a mint patch about three times a year. This is where you let it get up to a certain height. You, you take something, like I said, like a scythe, and you go through And you, you notice how much more valuable the scythe is here than the string trimmer, right? I've tried to get my wife to learn how to use a scythe. She gets out with that string trimmer, and she loves it. She's all over the place, and I'm like... I could do 20 times what you do in an hour with an hour of scything. I really could. Um, it, it, there are certain places the string trimmer makes sense, like getting under things where it's hard to get in with a scythe and all. But the, the beauty of a scythe is when you cut something, 
uh, with a scythe, it just kind of falls over and you have the whole part. So to me, you go into a mint patch, and when it's in that nice stage, which is bright green, thick green stems, high, but not yet flowering, maybe one or two buds have shown up on one or two sprigs, and you're like, okay, it's time. And you hit that with a scythe, it just cuts like butter. And if you cut it to the ground, I think that's a mistake. The, the scythe is, is immediately manually adjustable, right? So if you come across at about two inches high, you've got this nice little stubble for everything to start coppicing back up off of it. It actually, the second flush of the year is thicker. And then you can do that again, and you can usually get a third harvest. And often, you still might get an end of year harvest. When the first heavy freeze comes, the mint goes, I'm sad and dies. So when you know that's coming, whatever's left, don't necessarily take it to the ground again. I don't like taking anything to the ground. But go out and take it a couple inches above the ground again and get one more harvest if you need it, if you can use it. So that's your, your full harvest. Is, to me, scything's the way to go. Uh, you can cut it with scissors. You can cut it with shears. You can cut it with a knife. You can cut it with a machete. You can do whatever you want. Um, but if you're harvesting a lot of it, you can take a scythe across a 10 by 10 patch in about, I don't know, 25 seconds and be done. And you get a perfect, well, as you get technique down with the side, you get a perfect level cut. And you get a uniformity so that you don't advantage one patch against the other, especially when you have different varieties, that might be important. So that's why it's my preferred method. As I got rid of that sweet mint I talked about the other day, some of it had kind of encroached around a, a gumi, and some of it had kind of encroached around a, a goji berry. So the stuff that was encroaching and I didn't want to hurt the other plants, I went in with cutters. But you know, as I did that, it took me a certain amount of time to get all of that away from there. And once I cleared that out and I got the scythe, it was like chomp, 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 done. Um, so definitely consider a scythe. If not a scythe, a hand sickle. Uh, and specifically, probably the best type of hand sickle you can use is a serrated one, uh, what you'd call a rice knife. On some level, it's ease of harvest to use a rice knife over a, a, a hand sickle with a straight edge. Uh, and on another hand, it's a safety issue. For a sickle to work well when you're grabbing a bundle and chopping, it has to be really, really sharp. And you have to maintain it really, really sharp. Uh, a small hand sickle, if you have a small patch, you could just get down and just chomp, chomp, chomp without grabbing it and then pick it all up like you would with a, like a miniature scythe action. That would be okay. Uh, but you don't have the power. I mean, people don't realize how much power there is in swinging a scythe because when you do it right, it doesn't look like a harsh swing, but there's a lot of mechanical advantage on that long, what they call a snatch or the, the handle. When you do it with a, with a hand piece, unless it's really, really sharp, you get a lot of half cuts, partial cuts, misses, things like that. And when you reach in and grab a bundle, cut a bundle, and, and put it somewhere, um, you kind of have to use a chopping motion unless you have a seriously, seriously sharp blade you maintain. If you get a rice knife, which is basically a hand sickle with serrations, like a steak knife, it, it maintains its edge with its serrations. And when you reach down and grab your bundle that you're going to cut, you lay the knife on it, and then you, you, you use a cutting motion with the knife. Some people prefer a backward motion, some for a forward. Most of the ones I've used seem to work much better with a forward motion. By laying the blade down first, if it's on your hand... You're going to feel it, and if you don't for some weird reason, when you start to push, you're probably going to stop. If you make a chopping motion and you happen to hit your thumb, you'll know after the piece of your thumb falls off or the gaping wound is created in your hand. 
This sucks anytime. We always want to be safe. But during a shit at the fan, these minor wounds become major problems with potentials for infection, long-term disabilities. And guys, I know professional people who no longer practice their profession from cutting things like tendons in their fingers and hands if they were highly dependent on the mobility of their fingers and their hands. You can get a very serious life-altering injury that doesn't seem that bad in your head until it happens to your body. So I'm not big on chopping motions with hand sickles. And if you are, you have to have like a mental rule that it's like a foot away type thing. If you're going to use a hand harvesting tool for mint, I recommend either shears or a rice knife for both of those reasons. Um, once you have it harvested, drying it is the best way for long-term storage. And drying makes the formulation of teas a lot easier as far as known quantities, recipes, things like that. You don't want to bother using your Excalibur dehydrator for mint. It's not that it won't work. It's just it's entirely unnecessary, and you're going to spend a lot of time that you don't need to spend doing something you really don't need to do. I harvest the full stems. I tie them in bundles about as big around as like a uh, quart mason jar. I tie that with hemp. I hang it from the ceiling in my barn with the door open on a, on a warm day. And unless you're in the most humid climate in the world, that's all you're going to need to do. If you are in a fairly humid climate, get a box fan and kind of point it in the direction of your mint, and it'll, it'll be just fine. Uh, I see no need to dry mint. And then once it's dry, and you want to separate the leaves from the stems, you just cut your bundle loose, you grab your stem, and you just take your hand and go, thump, thump, and the leaves just crumble right off. And if you want to, then you can sift your leaves with a sifter, or you can just put them away. My favorite way to... Store dry mint, mason jar, little lid. That's it. That's the whole thing. You, you don't really need to do anything other than just that. And uh, you can vacuum seal it. You can O2 absorber it and all. It keeps really, really well, assuming you're going to be using it anytime soon. And it's not generally something we store for like 20 years because it's so productive and it comes back every year. And a year's supply is probably all anybody would ever need. Um Once we have it in that dried storage, we can make um, just about anything we want to with it, and you use a lot less uh, in, in, in appearance, but it's really close to the same amount because it really gets smaller. The, the bundle that you hang, you think, oh, my God, look at this. And you know, getting a quart jar, that's a lot of those bundles, to fill a quart jar to the top with loosely packed dried mint leaves. That's a lot of mint. Um, but when it comes to making teas... I'll give you my two rules of thumbs. When I am making tea from fresh leaves, I generally fill the container that I'm making the tea with halfway loose-packed with a fresh green leaf just cut. If I want to make a concentrate, I fill it about three-quarters, and then I can add about 25% more water. Trying to fill it all the way, you don't get enough water in there to get the results that you're looking for. So three-quarters of the way loose-packed, I can then top that tea up with another 25% water or drink it as a stronger tea and get a good result out of it. For dried teas, you're going to put it to like a tea ball or something like that, it's about one uh, teaspoon per cup. One teaspoon of dried mint leaves per eight-ounce cup of water is about how much you would use. Again, like my go-to mixture is the bee balm, the lemon balm, and the mint mixed at a ratio of one to one to one half, and with one half being the bee balm. It brings that nice buttery, velvety thing going on to it. If you went one, one, and one with it, it'd be fine. 
So instead of trying to measure out partial teaspoons, what you do is you you know you get a, a tablespoon or a serving spoon and you go one and then you go one and then you go a half or you go one depending on what you want to do. Um, and then you mix that up well and you use a teaspoon of that to your eight ounce cup of water. So those are my two rules of thumb with that. You can play with it. And this is not baking a freaking cake. Okay, this is one of those things where you can't be the guy that gets the recipe for the chicken soup and it says to add a dash of parsley and you don't have parsley so now you can't make the soup. You can't get hung up on this stuff. Make it taste it. If you think I could be mintier, add more. Right? If you think that's a little bit much of a particular flavor, add less. And this is a good case. If you want to actually play with this and get good at blending, make a mint tea, a peppermint tea, make a spearmint tea, make a, make a minority tea, a, 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 a bee balm tea, a lemon balm tea. Make them separately and learn the flavors. And then when you make a blend, you can, you can find those flavors and say, you could use a little bit more of this. And sometimes a little bit more of something is simply cutting back one thing, not just adding another thing. It's actually really fun. You, you can play with this a lot, and you can make your own varieties, which then become pretty marketable. And I'll talk about marketability here in just a second and why you can actually sell this stuff for more than the stuff that sells on Amazon that, that, that would technically compete with it. Um, next, I'm going to touch on really, really briefly because it is – I've seen people make homemade stills for this, but – um, I haven't heard the best of results from that when it comes to making essential oils. A really high quality still designed for making essential oils generally costs between three and five hundred dollars. And you you think essential oils are expensive until you see what it takes to make an ounce. It is a, a huge amount to an ounce. Essential oils are so highly concentrated. Personally, for me, up till now, with all the other things I have to do in my life, I'm happy to go Western Botanicals, and if I want some peppermint essential oil, just buy a little bottle of it and just let somebody else do it. But you can do it, and there are um, different stills available. You can find them on Amazon.com and elsewhere. I've seen little pot stills and things like that, like little mini ones that seem like they work kind of probably okay, sort of. You're probably not going to get anywhere near the the level of quality that you would get by buying a professionally made essential oil. So I just think this is the one place where maybe you go ahead and you you make the the, the purchase of the item. And some essential oils don't store very well, but peppermint stores really well if it's kept in a dark container like it should be, tightly covered and in a cool, dark place. So I just don't see that one as being worth it to me, especially if all I was going to do is mint, uh, to do mint uh, essential oils, though you can do it if you want to. And it would be a good product because it would be unique. I guarantee you there's not a lot of people in your neighborhood selling it. But you really need to go into, like, heroic production amounts of mint to make this worth doing. Uh, if you're going to try to do it marketably or, or what have you. Uh, it takes a lot. Generally, when you're making essential oils, it's better to use dry mint uh, just because of the quantity and, and what have you. And you get a better extraction. You can also make simple oils. Um, now, a lot of people uh, market like something, and they don't usually call it essential oils, because sooner or later they're going to get called out on it, but they'll say, you know, pure peppermint oil or something like that. And what it is is pure 
vo uh, olive oil or you know maybe worse canola oil or some other type of oil that you should never ingest internally would be another problem uh, infused with peppermint or infused with rosemary or whatever the heck they're selling and these are your cheaper oils they usually package them to look like essential oils and sell them at incredible margins because they're using a deception without fully deceiving like there it's a buyer beware type scenario But these do have uses as cosmetic products, as culinary products, whatever. And basically the way I have found the best way to make a mint-infused oil is to use enough oil to cover the herb and heat it in a small crock pot until it has the level of aroma and flavor that you're looking for, whatever that might be. Um, You use a lot less dry again to to a green uh, plant. If you use green mint, you know, and you do just a cover, you end up with a a pretty good mint oil. Okay, a mint infused oil. If you're using dry mint, you really don't want to just barely cover uh, a dry mint because uh, what's going to happen is the mint's going to take so much of the oil up uh, that it's going to rehydrate with oil. And you're going to get a good exchange of the flavors, but you're going to get something that's like a, like a slurry when you're done. And you're going to have a lot of trouble really squeezing it out well. But you might want to do that for another reason. We'll talk about that in a second. With dry leaf, I would use more like two tablespoons, maybe three tablespoons to uh, about a cup. And again, the same scenario and extract it that way. Um, I want to talk. I talked about essential oils, and this is not really a way to make essential oils economically. Um, but you can make what you would call an essential oil, or similar to it, or a much stronger oil, one of two different ways. One is through making a tincture, and to make a tincture of, 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 of uh, peppermint. Is really easy and it has its own uses. It can definitely be used as as a as, a, as something for calming the stomach because it has a lot more extractive capability than um, let's say just a tea. And you use to do that, you use grain alcohol. And if you you can take the end product and cut it with distilled water, if you're going to leave it as a tincture, if it's too high. But I like to use really high proof alcohol to do this with like Everclear, that type of a high-proof alcohol. And basically, you cram a jar full of fresh mint, or again, reduce the quantities if you're using dry, and cover it with the alcohol. Put a, a, a tight-fitting lid on it, keep it in a dark, cool location, shake it really hard once or twice a day for a couple weeks, and then strain it off. You now have an alcohol tincture of peppermint, and it has extracted a lot of the essential oils and things like that uh, with it. Now, if this is why it's not economical, right? So now you take the jar and you open it. And if you're using high-proof alcohol like an Everclear, it's what? It's like 190 proof or something like that. It's really, really high-proof. There's not much water there. And alcohol evaporates really, really quickly. So if we just set it out after it's been strained and let it evaporate down to maybe uh, 10% of its volume, you have some water and you have the essential oils are not going to really evaporate very well. And you're going to have a very concentrated, oily-like substance that some people would call essential oils. I would not call it essential oils. It's probably also going to have some grittiness and some leftover leaves and stuff that got through the first straining. You'd strain that again and put that into a bottle, and it's very useful. We can also just make what I would call a very strong oil. And we take our little crock pot, we put a couple of olive oil in it, 
put five or six tablespoons of mint, dried mint leaves into it or covered uh, fresh mint, but dried mint would work better for this, and, and simmer it in the crock pot on low for a, a full day. And then we strain it and we put that, uh, that, that mint leaf poultice into one of those flour sacks also, and we just, just squeeze everything we can get out of it. And then the next day do it again. Make a double infused oil. Um, you're going to lose some of your oil. You're not going to, it's not an essential oil, but I would call both of these things like a poor man's mint essential oil. Uh, and we could do that with, uh, I, I don't like using canola oil, but if you want to do it with a more neutral oil, as far as flavor, you could do it with a canola oil or even a peanut oil. I really wouldn't do that. Um, I, I've started to come to the, a couple different beliefs with, with food and, and things that you use on your body. And those are, if I wouldn't put it in my mouth, uh, I probably should not be putting it on my skin. Not that I would like to eat it, but if I did put some in my mouth, it wouldn't have a disastrous health effect on my body. Uh, and it does my hair. I mean, your skin is your largest organ, and it absorbs everything into your bloodstream. So if eating it would be bad for you, it probably shouldn't be on your skin. And the second is that if... <laughs> If you would look at something and, and, and say to yourself that I need to wash this before I eat it, unless you're washing dirt or sand or insect or something like that off of it, um, you, you, you can't wash off what you're trying to wash off. If you're washing food because it was sprayed with insecticides and herbicides, you're not washing it off. I'm not saying like if you have to eat it, it doesn't do any good at all to wash it off, but you're not washing it off. If you're eating an apple that was sprayed with a pesticide, pesticide residue is not only on the skin, but it is now in the apple. You're never getting rid of it all. So I try to take that into account when I'm making any kind of an oil that would be used topically. I want to use an oil that I would want to ingest. Not just I can ingest, but I would want to ingest. Um, a way that you can make a salve, and that, I really don't know much about doing mint salves, I don't know that there's much value to them, but I do comfrey salves and plantain salves. Um, generally, you make an oil, and then you add beeswax, and the beeswax thickens it. Well, one of the ways that we can do that with an oil that's very good for the skin and get very close to the salve right from the beginning is coconut oil. When we heat coconut oil, it goes, you know, it looks like oil. When it sits at room temperature, it's the consistency of something more like lard. So coconut oil can also be infused with, with different herbs, as a little aside there. Um, I also believe that if you're going to get into this with any, you know, beyond just a few pots and whatever, if you're actually going to think about maybe selling teas and stuff like that, uh, or selling plants or selling product that's made with your own mint, that intensifying quality is a great idea. So I think that this is really simple with mint, but it's often overlooked. Uh, it's some basic practices. Spraying with compost teas uh, a couple times a year will just, I mean, I've done it. You, you take a compost tea, or I like to use Garrett juice because it's available off the shelf and easy, and it's made with compost tea and, and molasses and some other things. The compost, the Garrett juice plus, G-A-R-R-E-T-T, -T, Garrett, is inherited Garrett the doc, dirt doctor. Uh, the Garrett juice product, uh, the plus has the fish with it as well with a little nitrogen kick. You mix the stuff with water according to the instructions, and you put it in a spray bottle or a sprayer, and you spray your, your, your and I use this on everything. But you spray mint with it that looks happy, but yeah, you know, it's just it's just happy. You come out two days later and it's like boom, it's just 
oh, it's just up. And plants that are virulent like that and, and, and vibrant in color and, and whatever, everything else about them is wonderful. And what it does, it's not just feeding them, it's giving them the vigor to extract what they need from your soil. So uh, spraying with your compost teas, Garrett Juice Plus, etc., several times a year, I think is a great idea. Um, overall, encouraging soil health like we always do. And then the last thing is when you do that final harvest of the year and you, you, you cut it down about you know an inch, two inches high, and if the frost is coming, mulch it with a layer of compost. Mulch your whole mint patch or your pot of mint, whatever it is, with a layer of compost. Uh, it, when it goes to sleep for the winter. And that compost will feed that soil all winter long. And you'll get days where the mint will start growing and then, you know, the frost will, uh, will kill it back again and things like that. But it'll be just fine. Um, and even another, like a, then a, then a top layer of like untreated straw or something like that that rots through the, the winter. And you're just feeding the soil. Um, I am a big fan of dried molasses. A few sprinkles of that, especially in late fall. Um, any kind of a, an organic grain meal, uh, organic cornmeal, organic cornmeal. You, I'm not talking about a lot. Right? I'm not talking about buying a hundred pound sack of high dollar organic cornmeal. I'm talking about a, you know you have a little pouch of it that you have in your kitchen and taking a couple cups of it and sprinkling it feeds earthworms and beneficial organisms and things like that. But definitely pay attention to the soil quality. Give it give it some nutrient. Uh, another great thing to spray your, your mint with or saturate the ground where your mint's growing with is comfrey tea. And comfrey tea is a, is a great dynamic accumulation, and it's a green manure. And we just make that by taking a bunch of comfrey leaves and stick them in a five-gallon bucket, cover it with water, uh, take a bucket lid and cut it so it'll fit inside the bucket like a top, Set that on top of your leaves. So you don't need a lot of water here. You can actually not even have the water come all the way up over the top of the leaves with this. Set a couple bricks on that, and it's going to stink to high heaven. It's going to smell like poop. It's going to smell like sewage. Cow poop soup, basically. Um, but that uh, on your mint will provide another layer layer of, uh, of intensifying the quality. And you want to, you know, if you're going to have a marketable product, you want it to be the strongest, most marketable product that you can. You want your your story to go with it that we'll stay about here a little bit for uh, a minute. But again, on developing tea blends, make sure that you, if you're going to do that, that you do taste all the varieties individually. And uh, when you do that, you'll then be able to understand the different contributions. Understand how many varieties there are out there. There's chocolate, and yes, it has a chocolate smell to it. There's orange mints. There's there's things that have names that like pineapple mint that are, are kind of interesting looking plants and things like that that have this like faint bit of these different characteristics in them. That's where they come up with the names. But in the end, I think it makes a lot of sense if you're if you're buying from nurseries or any place like that you find mint um, to, to smell it, to taste it, make a tea with it, determine is this something I want to invest time and effort in? Because um, sometimes you'll say, you know. There's nothing wrong with this, but it's not better than anything I already have. So you know, if I'm going to add something new, I want it to have a different quality or a different uh, use to me maybe or a different contribution than something that I already have. So when you're developing your blends, always make sure you, you, you make individual varieties to taste um, and do sweeten them. Even just small amounts of sugar, as though you were using salt, as I talked about in an earlier show, um, brings the flavors up front and out. I can give you two plates of food, prepared exactly the same way, and I hit one with a little salt, you're like, that's so much better. It's not just because it's salty, it's because the salt brings the flavor out. With mint especially, mint 
and, and Menardas, um, the, 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 the flavor is there, and it's almost in the background, and a little bit of sweetness, whether it's sugar, whether it's stevia, whether it's honey, brings it to the front. So taste it with a little bit of sugar. And if you want to keep the sugar down, what you do then with your blends is you make a cup of tea and you either taste it warm or cold and you add a tiny bit of sugar to it. And you take a tiny taste of it and you go, that's, that's, that's there or it's not. You add a little bit more. You find the minimum amount that will give you what you're looking for. That way you can recommend to your customer um, a, a specific amount and you minimize the sugar intake. Again, you can do it with stevia. I like stevia. Um, but I do find a little bit of the Diet Cola-like aftertaste even with Stevia. Not anywhere near like with the true artificial sweeteners, but a little bit of it. And I found a lot of times that the way to use Stevia is half the amount that would give you the sweetness you're looking for, which is hard to do with small amounts, right? One drop of Stevia in a cup to me is just, ugh, too much. But maybe two drops in a gallon with a little bit of sugar often is really good. So you try those individual blends. You start making blends and tasting them and determining what your unique blends are going to be. And then you can build on these, right? So goji berry, blackberry. There's a lot of things that can be added to uh, these different mint teas to enhance them. But this is a good base. Think of it like like your Camilla. Like, so they grow tea, traditional you know, tea. Uh, in China and a lot of other places around the world. We can grow it here in the United States, but it just doesn't do as well as it does in other parts of the world. But then we take that tea and we blend it with orange and mango. I make orange mango mist with ginger, orange mango ginger mist or whatever. You can make your own varieties using this as your core base. You can also do other things as a core base. There's a lot of stuff that makes great tea. Chamomile is another example. Um, but this is really a unique product. And I want to talk real quick about propagation. So how do we propagate mint? And the, the real answer is you take cuttings and stick it in moist soil and keep it moist for a couple of weeks, and it'll probably grow, and you'll probably get close to 100% success. That's how simple it is. But I said I pay myself to make a gallon of tea, and I do. Uh, for every gallon of tea I, I make, I either have about $20 worth of plants, uh, or I have about $20 worth of dollars I can get for selling plants for very little work. When I make a gallon, I get a lot. Of, of my three varieties. And I usually end up making about two pots of peppermint, two pots of lemon balm, and one pot of bee balm every time I make tea if I feel like doing it. And the way I do that is I cut my, my large pieces of the different varieties. And then I cut about eight-inch ends off of the good-looking green shoots at the end. So a, a shoot that's really flipsy-flopsy is not really what I'm looking for. And one that's like hardened, I don't really want... I want a good uh, softwood, as it's called, that you'd learn in Nick's propagation course if you took that through Permaethos. But you, you, you really quick get to this. And Mint's not real fussy about this. It, it is, like I said, one of the easiest to propagate. But I get, and I, you know, I find enough to make what I'm doing. And what I usually do is per pot, I put four sprigs in each pot. So I need eight peppermint, my best eight sprigs of peppermint, my best eight sprigs of lemon balm, my best four sprigs of bee balm. Can always get more if I want it. Uh, not not saying I can go back for more, but I can always get more out of one gallon batch of fresh tea than I can than that if I wanted to make more. If I really want to make my plant pot really marketable and sell really fast, I might put six or even eight sprigs in each plant uh, pot so that it goes really fast. These are small nursery pots. Uh, they're about the size of a of a, a quart mason jar. About that size. You don't want too big of a pot. It takes a lot more dirt. You're cutting your profit margin. Dirt's an expense when you're when you're doing this. You're potting soil. So 
I take th those sprigs aside, and then I just take all the rest, and if the stems are too big, I cut them out, pull the leaves off. But mostly I take stems, leaves, everything. That goes into my jars to make my tea. I then take these sprigs that are about eight inches long, and I only need like three or four leaves left on them. So I strip all the leaves off of all the sprigs. So even that goes into the tea. So it's this little sprig about eight inches long with four or five leaves at the end of it. And I set those aside. All you really have to do is get your pots full of potting soil, stick them in there, water them really good, and keep them well watered, and they'll probably root. Since I have rooting hormone, I make a bundle. I have a little jar of one-to-one -one mix of liquid rooting hormone. I stick them in there. I count to five. I pull it out. Be careful with this stuff. It is not something you want on your body. There's a, an acid and a hormone going on there that's not good for you. You certainly don't want it spilled on you, so be careful with it. Set them to the side. Close it back up and put it away. I don't mess around with rooting hormone based on the warning label. And then you stick your sprigs, keep it wet, and they take off faster and they root so aggressively. If you put six to eight sprigs in one of those little nursery pots, in four weeks you have this booming plant. And when, if you have customers, especially for other things that are coming to your little homestead or farm, so you, you, you want some mint, look at the plants I have. You have four or five different varieties. Here. These are $5 a piece. Don't be surprised when they go, I'll take one of each. If you have four varieties, there's 20 bucks, boom, like that. When I sell duck eggs for $7.50 a dozen to a customer, I'm making about $2 is what I'm making. And there's quite a bit of effort that goes into that $2. When I sell a pot of mint for five bucks to a customer, I got 50 cents into the dirt in the pot, if that. And I'll often say, if you're going to plant that in a bigger pot or whatever, if you would, to help me keep my cost down, you bring my pots back the next time you come back. And most people will bring your pots back. Otherwise, they're going to throw them away. So you might get four or five uses out of one pot. So if you're making five pots at five bucks a pot and you decide to plant one for yourself, you can make a gallon of tea and pay yourself $20. I am going to tell you flat out, unless you become the mint pimp, of your selective region, and really develop channels for mint, which I think would be difficult to do as a specialty, you're probably not going to make your house payment, even one payment a year, unless you live in a really cheap house selling mint like that. But I bet you, I bet you you can fill your tank, you know, a few times a year, your gas tank. If you're like me, you can probably fill, I can probably pay for all the fuel my big giant diesel truck will use for a year selling pots of mint. Because I don't drive that much anymore. Right? That truck goes to pick up dirt and stuff like that. I, I, I was surprised when gas went down, I filled it. It was like less than 100 bucks to fill it. I'm like, what, what happened? What's wrong? And I had like a quarter tank in there, and, and, and diesel fuel I dropped for a while to like almost two bucks. It had been so long since I filled it up, I didn't even know. So that's not a huge thing for me to be able to say. But think about that. Think about just putting two, three hundred bucks extra for very little work, in your pocket a year. And if there's 20, 30 ways that you can do that, and this is just one of them, you start to see how like the farmstead, homestead lifestyle has all these little buckets of collection in them. right? And this is an easy one. People like mint. And if you have it growing, you can say, well, this is what that looks like when it grows up. This is what that looks like when it has flowers on it. This is what that smells like. This is what's in that $10 packet of tea you'd spot. You can make your own. Well, if I sell my customer the plant and they can make their own tea, they might stop by and mine. No, they won't. Not if you're doing blends and it's prepared and it's dry and whatever. And uh, there's, there's some money to be made there, too. And the reason I talked about this product today is because, yes, the small 
person with an apartment can grow cement and have some variety in their life and have this great, wonderful plant that does all these things. But yes, it's also a monetary plant. And there's so many of you out there trying to monetize your homestead activities. And it, it is the case that I think the best thing you can do is specialize in something. That's why we do duck eggs. We have people that will drive. Nobody is going to drive an hour to buy two pots of mint for me. Okay? No one's going to do it. But the duck egg they'll drive for, we have a specialty, something that we're known for, something that once a customer buys our product, they come back time and time again. Selling that person a $5 pot of mint, a $7 uh, little baggie full of a mint tea, or any of the other, or a comfrey salve, or any of the other things we're starting to add, becomes very easy. They've already drove an hour for your eggs, these little add-on products. And this is how you start to, de to develop a core business that can be run very, very part-time, but can make a significant contribution to your long-term financial survival. You start thinking about this type of thing compounding over 10 or 20 years, it gets pretty powerful. We're talking about, you know, if you really did a variety of things, you had a dozen things like this, and you, you built your, your, your farmstead, your homestead business uh, with a core, and then these little peripheral things. You're, you're talking over time invested $100,000, $200,000 added to it a retirement or accelerating the payoff of debt for what? Sticking some mint leaves in, or some mint sticks into a, a pot? Can you sell a thousand of them? I doubt it. I doubt it. It's a very, very common plant. But I will tell you this. When I go to Walmart, when I go to Home Depot, when I go to Lowe's in the spring... And they have all those plants out there. They have mint plants out there for $4.98 for a little peat pot that look like dog crap compared to what I'm producing in five minutes in my garage. Okay? My product looks better. It works better. It is better. And it's worth at least what that box store is selling it for. And you know what I see when I go to them? People with shopping carts with loads of them in their shopping carts. So we know there's a market. If it's in a box store, it has a market, or it wouldn't be in a box store. I, a lot of you guys have been quoting me for some really profound political stuff lately and all, but that's an economic thing. That's like that. There's a quote for you. If it's in a box store, it has a market, or it wouldn't be in a box store. And that means if you make a superior product, then you can sell that product too. And this is why they cannot compete with you. This is why they cannot compete with you. I don't even have to bash these conventional nurseries. I don't have to explain that they use nicotinoids uh, in their insecticides that harm bees when you bring them to your house. Because I think it's a little bit overblown because that doesn't last forever. They wouldn't repeatedly apply it. Okay, I don't have to explain that the, 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 the soil that's grown in is not organic, and, and I don't have to bash it. All right, That product has no story. That means it's very poorly marketable. It's not that it's not marketable, but it's poor marketability. It's in a box store because now it doesn't require marketing. The box store markets itself is a place to get everything from washers and dryers to flooring to the stuff to landscape with. So you come in for your landscaping, oh, mint smells good, I'll add that to my basket. So... It can be poorly marketable and sell in that place because there's peripheral marketing around it. But it can't compete with you because you can tell your customer, I apply compost teas at this frequency. 
I harvest at this frequency. When I harvest, I dry right over there. There's the plant that this product was harvested from. Or I made this plant that I'm selling to you for five bucks that you can go take to your house. It came from that plant right there. That's what it's going to look like when it grows up if you take care of it. Oh, by the way, here's how you take care of it. The box store can't afford that time, that commitment. It can't produce at the level because it has to produce at the billions, right? You can produce at the dozens. And be careful how much of these things, how many of these things you make. You could end up sitting there with 500 pots of mint if you're not careful. But if you do it right, and like I said, you make, I make a gallon of tea, I make, I make five plants. And that means that you know, about every two or three days in the summer, I'm making a gallon of this tea because we keep it in the refrigerator and we drink it as a, a primary drink. Okay, that I have these staged, you know, five at a time plants that are, you know, three to four weeks later coming into full on bam, like they're impressive to a customer. And all I have to do is sell those four or five in conjunction with everything else we're doing. Hey, have you, do you have any mint? Would you like some? Look, these are five bucks. What do you think? And if that person's been to a box store, and they probably have at some point or another, that's why they're doing business with you because they want to do business locally and they don't want to buy from that chain, but they've been there and they look at that plant and they think about what they've seen, you know, sitting out at a Walmart that gets watered once a day while it bakes in the sun and goes from happy to suffering and happy to suffering and happy to suffering. And your plant has just been beautifully cared for. Like, holy crap, five bucks? Yeah, but done. And it's an easy sell. Because it's cheap. If I want to sell you something that costs 50 bucks, even if you have plenty of money, you're still going to at least go, I don't, do I need this? I want to sell you something for five bucks. We have a pre-existing relationship. You think, I'd like to have that. Five bucks is just done. It's just done. And I've had customers, we had a customer a couple weeks ago. They, they had cash on them, but they only had enough cash for like two dozen duck eggs. And they were recently converted vegans. They'd gone from vegan to vegetarian. Right, so they were finally starting to eat like eggs and stuff, and cheese and milk and, and whatever, and they were like fiending for this stuff. And uh, they was like, "Well, wow, we drove pretty far. Maybe we should buy some extra duck eggs." Well, seven fifty, it does. And I said, "Take three. You owe us seven fifty next time you come." They're probably coming back. If they're not, what am I out? Seven bucks? You know, my, at my cost, I'm out five fifty. I, I, and I've earned that customer's trust. Right, So these low-dollar items, when somebody wants to add on and they're short on cash and they just want to pay cash, which is good for everybody, then you can just say, you know what, I'll give you one of those on credit. And that's not the kind of credit that you get in trouble with. right? You don't get in trouble over owing your, your local nurseryman in five or ten bucks or your local egg producer five or ten bucks. You get in trouble by doing that a 100,000 times with a Visa card. So I brought this to you today because, one, it's something we're doing now, and I like to bring the topical things that we're doing to you because we're putting this big mint garden with all these different varieties that are going to do all these different products for our, our, our farmstead. So it's relevant. It's real. It's not some made-up etherical crap that I just pulled out of my ass, but it's also because it has so many different dimensions that it can play in. And you thought it was just mint. It is just mint. That's actually what makes it amazing, that it's just mint. And it could do all of these awesome things for us. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
like there's nothing I can do It's the price we'll pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution is you.